A long time ago, in a land far, far away, it's another Sabbath in first century Palestine. And all over the region, as on every Sabbath, people, faithful Jews, are gathering in their local synagogues to hear the reading of Scripture and to sing psalms together. And as the custom goes, people will gather and someone, at times a visiting person, would walk to the front from the rows of people sitting on the floor and read from one of the scrolls, maybe the Torah, maybe the prophets, maybe the histories. And having finished the reading, he would then sit down and begin to expound, to teach a sermon for the day. This Sabbath is a hot and dry Middle East day, and some of the synagogue attendees will be dozing off in the corner. And the teacher for the day will be wondering, what does he have to do to keep Brother Ben so-and-so awake today? But at this one particular synagogue in this first century Palestine town, As Luke, the gospel writer, tells us, Jesus of Nazareth is the guest teacher for the day. And so likely there will not be very many people sleeping because lately, wherever Jesus goes, there seems to be a little bit of drama that follows him. Early on, uh, and people whisper and remember this, Jesus visited his own hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and by the time he was done, people had almost pushed him off a cliff, literally. But so far, on this Sabbath morning, nothing of particular note has happened. By the time uh, the worshipers have sung several songs and, and prayed together, it's time for Jesus to walk up to the front. And, and as he moves towards that large Isaiah scroll on its sacred stand, Jesus looks out past the edge of his prayer shawl, and something catches his eye in the back of the synagogue, just outside the doors. It's actually someone that catches his eye. Jesus looks and stops, puts the scroll back in its stand. Of course, when Jesus looks towards the back, everyone in that synagogue congregation turns to look as well, and when they look, they see a woman that they recognize. They see this woman that hasn't been around for a while, but she's a woman that is very memorable because the woman in the back is hunched over, says Luke. She's hunched way over, shoulders drooping. In fact, the way Luke Luke puts it, you try saying that. The way Luke puts it, she is bent in on herself like a pretzel. The people recognize her because they've seen her before, but actually it's a little surprising because it's been a while. She hasn't come to synagogue for a long time. She hasn't even really hung around town for a long time. And when they look, they think, wow, she is even more bent over than we remember. What what has it been, like 18 years? The woman mostly just stares at the dirt in front of her feet. She's bent over so far she can't really look up. Imagine what it would be like to be hunched over. In fact, 
I know you're getting comfy in your chairs, and it's going to be hot today, so we don't want dozing off. So try this. Will you, will you stand up for a moment? Stand up, and, and stand up, and if you can, start to let your shoulders hunch over. Some of you are closer to this already, but let them, <laughs> let them fall farther over and farther and farther and farther. And once you're down, like Luke says, bent in on yourself, try looking at someone's face next to you. Even if you're a doctor, you can try this. Try looking at someone's face and, and making eye... It's, impo- it's hard, right? Especially if that person is standing up. Some of you are short already and have a hard time looking up. But when you're bent over, it's easier just to walk around staring at the dust in front of your bare feet than to try and make eye contact. But it's just as well because why would she want to make eye contact when she knew that the only look she would get would be either sort of pity or judgment or worse. We don't know how this woman got like this. Luke says that she has a spirit of infirmity. It's an illness. The word he uses, the Greek word is asthenia. Asthenia. And at least in some circles, medical professionals still use this to describe the same kind of thing it meant even all the way back then. It's a condition of abnormal weakness or or general lack of energy. Kind of one of those catch-all phrases. Whatever it is, this woman is exhausted. She is drained of energy and vitality. Over 18 years, her exhaustion has bent her over lower and lower each year until she is so cramped and hunched she can't even stand up straight anymore to look someone in the eye. Clearly, life has been very hard on this woman. Perhaps she's had to work herself to exhaustion for a family. Uh, Maybe uh, she has been passed from husband to husband in her culture. Maybe uh, she had been tormented by some kind of psychological trauma or, or illness. Maybe she had caught a debilitating disease. Whatever it was, this illness, this condition, this general exhaustion has created this vicious cycle for the rest of her life as well. As she hunched lower and lower, she became less and less acceptable to the normal townspeople. She was different. She was ill. She was diseased. And therefore, she was an outcast. And the weight of it all had bent this woman in on herself for 18 years. It's interesting that Dr. Luke, the physician, gospel writer, is not very specific about what she has. He seems to have met with one of those problems that's kind of difficult to diagnose. It's, it's easy to see a lame person or a blind person or a person with leprosy, but this woman, he has to use kind of the, well, there's something wrong. Let's call it asthenia. It's another way of saying, probably. I'm not sure what's wrong with her, but clearly there's something. So here's a fancy sounding term that will make it feel less like we don't know really what's wrong with you. Some of you know how this feels, how frustrating and hopeless it can be to have one of those problems where clearly something's not right. And when you go to doctor after doctor after doctor, you end up with kind of the, well, 
there's something, but we're not sure. Let's call it this. There's another, there's another term that is, sounds general, but if I understand correctly, it's not one of those sort of general catch-all things. Have you heard the term failure to thrive? We'll, uh, we'll check in with our um, expert pediatrician afterwards. I'm going to say whatever I want to, but you can fact-check with him later. Um, my understanding is that while it sounds like kind of, oh, yeah, failure to thrive, actually with, with infants and with babies, it's a pretty specific kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, and, and maybe somewhere in the range of if, if this child is not uh, in the fifth percentile, catching up to the fifth percentile of gaining body weight and something like that, it, it's, it's a serious thing. It sends alarm bells, and we want to figure out what's wrong with this child. Failure to thrive. What I find interesting, if, if I understand correctly, is that that term gets used again later in life for adults or in geriatric medicine, but at that point, it's actually less of a specific diagnosis and more one of those, well, there's some, here's how Wikipedia puts it, so I know I've got this right. In adult medicine, <laughs> just give me an honorary degree, it's good. <laughs> in adult medicine, failure to thrive is a descriptive, non-specific term that encompasses, quotes, not doing well. <laughs> so, it fascinates me, and, and I wonder what it is about life that, as children, as babies, there is this thing called failure to thrive, and it sends some red flags and warning bells, and we want to figure out exactly what the problem is, because this child needs it fixed now, but by the time we've lived life for a while and progressed... Failure to thrive for us adults is like, well, they're not doing well. But it can probably be fixed at some point. That's life, right? All of us have something where we're not doing well. We're failing to thrive. But, you know, it it can wait. It's notable in this story about this woman who clearly is failing to thrive and has something very wrong with her that's been going on for 18 years. Nobody's been able to help it. It's interesting in this story that it's not this woman who comes and approaches Jesus herself. A lot of stories, the person goes. It's also not some other people who drag her in front of Jesus in order to create sort of a trap for him. Nor is it some friends who say, hey, we've got to get you to this guy, Jesus. In this story, the woman just happens to be wandering around in the back of the sanctuary, in the edges of the church, in the margins of the community. She's wandering there. And Jesus, in the middle of getting ready to preach, sees her and he calls her forward. I imagine very reluctantly this woman makes her way through the rows of seated worshipers, through the women and children seated in the back, and then through that sort of holier place where the men are seated in the front, and she moves quickly. It's one of the first times these seated worshipers can actually see her face, but she still doesn't want to look at them because she knows what she'll see in those eyes. She keeps her gaze focused on the familiar dirt in front of her bare feet. She walks slowly towards Jesus. Finally, she reaches the front where Jesus is waiting for her. And I imagine that as Jesus speaks to this woman, he gets down on his knees so that she can see his face. And, she, and Jesus says to this woman, woman, 
you are set free from your sickness. Except if we had ears to hear the Greek words that Luke is hearing, that, that Luke is using, there'd be just a little bit more to it because what Jesus says is, woman, you are loosed or untied from your sickness. Jesus has said earlier in quoting from the book of Isaiah, at the beginning of his ministry, I have come to loose the captives and set free those who are oppressed. And so when he lays his hands of blessing on this untouchable woman, immediately she is healed and the weight of 18 years of disease and rejection are lifted from her shoulders as she stands and moves her shoulders, loosening up her back, tightening. She finds her arms and hands raising all the way into a posture of praise and thanksgiving. It's a position she has not been able to experience for 18 years as she praises God for what he has done and thanks him for his goodness and kindness to her. You can imagine the emotion and the feeling in the room. Luke describes it for us. It's a scene of pure joy, of of innocent joy. A person has been healed and made whole. The crowds are amazed and rejoice, Luke says. It's this contagious feeling of of happiness as some are praising with the women. Others are wiping the tears from the corners of their eyes. And then a man rises from the front of the congregation. Everyone recognizes him, if not for his face, for his important looking clothing. They know this man is the leader of the synagogue. He's the head elder, the, the pastor. He's the guy around this congregation and for whatever reason unlike so many people in the room his 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 demeanor is one of being displeased and irritated and and offended and indignant and he turns to face the congregation and he speaks with his voice there are six days on which to work ought to be done Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. There's still some confusion among the congregants who have been rejoicing, and and so they don't all hear him. And so the man, says Luke, repeats himself repeatedly, and he says again, there are six days. He's speaking to the crowd, not to the woman, but he's trying to say it. There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. You can feel the joy of being sucked from the room. This party sure died, says one worshiper to another. And for the moment, this liberated, healed, upright woman is forgotten and all eyes are on Jesus and the leader of the synagogue, this religious person. It's a showdown once again with Jesus and the religious establishment. And when we read these stories, these stories in the gospel are, are painted pretty clear. It's not hard to figure out who are the good guys and the bad guys. And just like this one, we read it, we hear it, we know that guy has no place. He's the killjoy. He's the party killer. And Jesus is the good guy and the woman. And, but for a moment, can we at least sympathize, try a bit with this religious leader and where he's coming from? After all... This man values the Sabbath, right? 
He wants to protect the Sabbath and the traditions and laws around it. He wants to do what's right on the Sabbath. And can you blame him? Can we blame him for that? And after all, there is something in what he's saying that is true. He's right about something. This woman has been sick for 18 years. A few hours waiting till the sun goes down. It's not going to make a big difference for her. Is it really worth Jesus making all this commotion and, and stepping on the toes of the religious folks and, and bending things and, and, and all this be just for a few hours? She can make it to not even tomorrow, tonight. It's not hard to understand this reasoning for us, is it, right? I mean, how many of us, if we were driving down the road and we see some kind of accident, we see someone bleeding profusely from a wound, we would stop, wouldn't we? And call 911 and help. It's an emergency. We would go and do it. We would do something, likely. But someone we've seen on the corner every single day for the last several months, you'll be all right. You'll be here tomorrow, right, buddy? You know, we we can take care of it then. Or how about when someone talks about suicide, alarm bells go off, we go and whatever resources we have, we try and point them to someone who can help or we try and jump in or whatever, it's an emergency, but how about that person who's just merely depressed? Tomorrow they'll probably still be here, they'll be all right, they can make it tomorrow. It's not worth going into like to, to crisis mode for those people and throwing off the rhythm of our carefully orchestrated schedules and, and the life that we have. And besides Jesus, in this story, what, is it really worth the risk of upsetting more of the religious people that you've been stepping on toes when all this could have been done at just a few hours later? Why, why not on Sunday, Jesus? But Luke's clear in this story. Jesus doesn't want to wait until tomorrow. And in fact, he feels so strongly about that that he steps in between this religious leader and the woman that he's just healed and he calls out the religious leader. You can see Jesus preparing for this. He says, and I quote from Luke, You hypocrites! Oh boy, Jesus, you know, maybe just take it, take it easy. Don't each of you, he continues, untie on Sabbath your ox or your donkey from its stall and take it to get a drink of water? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for all these years, 18 long years, be set free from bondage on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine, church family, being there in that synagogue, in that room with Jesus in this story? Jesus' point is hard to miss, right? Uh, You, my well-meaning friend, he's looking at the religious leader, uh, are are a hypocrite. (laughs) You have your priorities backwards and inside out and upside down they're wrong you're willing he says to untie your farm animal and get them a drink which actually if we read carefully is already bending those sabbath rules a bit 
but you're not willing to have this woman who is no less than a daughter of God be healed on the Sabbath day? For shame, says Jesus. Jesus continues. He, he, he has this habit. It gets him in trouble. Of, of going ahead and inviting people into this club that's called the Sons of Abraham Club. And when he invites people in, he doesn't really bother to take a vote from the other club members to find out what they think about it. it, it it's, a, it's a club that you know the people who are religious in, in that day enjoyed being proud that they were sons of Abraham. It's a long Bible story that's a, a beautiful one in many ways. They are the chosen people, God's special ones. And of course, a tax collector like Zacchaeus, because Jesus is going to invite him right into that club, a tax collector in Zacchaeus, like Zacchaeus does not qualify for the club. He's a sinner. He's a tax collector. Certainly, a woman who's been hunched over for 18 years does not belong in the Sons of Abraham club until Jesus enters the picture. Because to him, this woman is a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of God. And here's what's so amazing about this story. Her freedom, this woman who's been hunched over for 18 long years, her freedom and her healing and her wholeness were absolutely urgent to Jesus. They couldn't wait until tomorrow Yes, she would survive another few hours until sundown, but Jesus isn't interested in this woman's merely surviving. He is interested in her thriving. As one of the other gospel writers, John, picks up on over and over, Jesus says, I have come not that you can have mediocre life, not that you can have life where you just get by until tomorrow. I have come that you may have abundant life. Jesus didn't want to go one more minute before giving this woman new life, before untying her, before unloosing the bonds of oppression that had bound her for all this time. And he thought Sabbath was a perfect time to unloose this woman. And I wonder how many of us are going through life just barely surviving. You ever feel like you're just barely getting by? You ever, it's not an emergency. There aren't the bells going off. You're not going to crash and burn, but just every day is sort of like, I'm making it okay. And you find yourself reflecting like, man, you remember those good old days when it just seemed like life was, mm, but eh, it's all right now. Can't really put my finger on it, but it's just general sort of like, ah, not that great. We'll, we'll get by. And the good news that the gospel writer Luke is trying to proclaim to us is that the story is one that tells us God wants people to have a life that is free from oppression and a life that is free from bondage and a life that is filled with the joy of being healed and made whole and welcomed by God. A life that is abundant. God's desire for creation, which means for you and your neighbor. God's desire for us is that we have the opportunity to do more in life than just survive. 
that, that you and they, your neighbor, may have life more abundant. The challenge is that I think sometimes some of us, maybe this is the case for you, over time, whether for whatever place, whether it was from a parent or a church congregation that you went to or a pastor that you knew or, or some reading that you did or a friend of yours, somehow some of you may have gotten the picture that God is more like the religious leader in this story who is more concerned with keeping you and everyone else in line than with your thriving and abundant living. God cares more about making sure that boundaries and, and are not crossed and rules are not broken than giving life to people who are bent over and suffering for years. And if you've gotten that picture of God before, I hope you hear in this story that God is not about that. God is the one we know in Jesus who says, I can't wait another minute to release these people from that kind of bondage and suffering. God is the one who said, I can't wait another minute to offer abundant life and whole living and the goodness of all that he has to offer to people. And I'm not so concerned that it may trample on some boundary lines. Or maybe as you hear this story, you realize, and maybe it's both for a lot of us, that at times you've gotten caught up yourself in the protecting of those boundaries and you've forgotten about the celebration that's going on and that is desired uh, that comes with the joy of, of healing and inclusion and liberation and welcome that God offers. You've gotten so stuck on the boundaries and, and the lines that you miss the celebration of the goodness that God was doing. And when you hear the story, I hope you hear the invitation of Jesus saying, Understand it happens, but I have so much more to offer you than that. I'm sure we all remember just a few months ago from the Olympics, Oscar Pistorius of South Africa. He was the runner that was a double amputee and ran uh, all the way to uh, the finals, right, of, the, of the, the medal round of the track and field. Incredible story. You remember this? Seeing this man who had two uh, legs that were only stumps competing. And at first, of course, the storyline was, isn't it amazing what this guy can do with a disability? And pretty soon the story was, that's just plain amazing no matter who you are. 13th. He has the 13th best time out of 39 run, uh, 40 some runners from 39 countries. No longer, by the time he was done, was the story about, oh, that's pretty good for a guy with no legs. It was, that's just pretty good, period. I can't do that, can you? As we tell this story, of course, the focus in the media, and as we heard the story over and over, was, of course, rightly and understandably, on the incredible personal courage and fortitude that it took for a man like that to persevere in his life and accomplish that incredible goal. And it, for good reason. It's an amazing story. But there's another side of that story that I think gets lost sometimes. It's the rest of the story, the kind of conditions that would have surrounded him to make something like that possible. 
And it reminds me of when my mom was working as a nurse near Pasadena, California, and she called me one day with a story that was quite touching, but she had uh, a purpose to the call as well. She told me she was taking care of a, of a guy who was about my age at the time, 22, 23. And he had had an accident and gotten an infection in his leg that in order to prevent a risk of some serious problems with his whole life, he was going to probably need to have an amputation of that leg. 22, 23. He'd been an athlete. The kid was broken up, as you can imagine. And he was traumatized and, and paralyzed in the face of having to make that final decision. It was his call. It was highly recommended by the doctors, but it was his call. And as he thought about, what kind of life do I want where I don't have a leg, he was paralyzed at the thought of that. My mom called because she said, I, you know, this, this is a tough story, but I remember the few of the triathlons that you've been in were sponsored by this organization called Challenge Athletes Foundation. Some of you are familiar with it. And it's an um, organization that works with uh, mostly amputees of either arms or legs and helps them to move past just surviving with this amputation, whether it was a late accident or a childhood problem, whatever, to actually becoming athletes who are competing in races far beyond where they ever imagined their lives could be. Here's the, um, here's the mission statement of the organization Challenge Athletes Foundation. is the mission of CAF to provide opportunities and support to people with physical disabilities so that they can pursue active lifestyles through physical fitness and competitive athletics. CIF believes that involvement in sports at any level increases self-esteem, encourages independence, and enhances quality of life. So they said, hey, here's some people who are just sure that life is going to be quite mediocre at this point. And we, as an organization, want to do something about this. And they recognized that their job was not just to go alongside these people and say, you can do it, buddy. You're going to run that race and you're going to do it well. I mean, you know, that's nice and all, but what does that do for someone who's just lost a leg? Instead, what CAF does is much more amazing. They fundraise heavily so that they can offer like super nice prosthetics to these people that can actually hold up to the vigors of running in sports. That's something that most of these kids or adults are not able to get for themselves. They go around uh, fundraising so they can fund major research to improve the technology that allows people like Oscar to be able to compete in the Olympics. They go around with speakers who go and, and, and encourage groups and then walk with individuals step by step along the very difficult process of moving from just making it and surviving to doing something that increases self-esteem and encourages independence and enhances quality of life. If only there were an organization that people who are bent over, bent in upon themselves from life's burdens who, who have been exiled from communities and labeled as outcasts or outsiders. If only there was an organization that people could point them to and said, these people have resources that can change your life. They're not just going to pat you on the back and encourage you, but they will tangibly help you walk step by step every day. 
every step of the way. They will actually promote things in society that will also make a difference for you. You gotta hook up with this organization. There can be, you know, it's called church. We can be, and Jesus calls us to be, and at times we already are, and we can do better at being that organization, that community of faith that says, hey, you've been bent over for 18 long years, but there's more for your life. And we're not going to just tell you that. We're going to dive in, and we're going to get our hands dirty, and we're going to see what we can do to take you step by step all the way. In the story of Luke, there were two reactions to the story. There was the guy who stood up and got shot down by Jesus, metaphorically. And then, of course, there was the crowd who was watching. Luke says the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things Jesus was doing. May we be with that crowd who rejoices and encourages anywhere we see it those things that are bringing life and healing and wholeness to the sons and daughters of God.